and welcome to another episode of Shorsha Speaks With. Uh, my name is Shorsha and I hope everyone listening is well. It's been a while since I've last recorded an interview. Uh, a lot of things uh, have been keeping me away from the podcast, uh, all good, but um, I am back and uh, very recently I was delighted to be interviewed to do a live Q&A with Willie McGee at uh, Lucan Library in Dublin as part of the Red Line Festival. Um, so uh, Willie McGee is an author, former uh, footballer for his County Mayo, and he was the head of the Fraud Squad as part of uh, the Garda Síochána, which is the Irish police. And um, I had a chance to talk to him about his book, Tales from the Fraud Squad. So we spoke about his time playing for Mayo. Uh, you will hear uh, how he scored four goals in a minor final for Mayo. So he's known as Willie Four Goal McGee. And uh, he'll talk a little bit about that. And he also spoke about some stories that you can find in the book. Uh, and about his time at Fraud Squad, which are really, really fascinating. Uh, I would really recommend people uh, to uh, read the book. It's uh, it's really, really interesting. It's funny, and um, some really, really interesting stories in the book. And uh, so you can also see some photos of the event on the website, shortshetspeakswith.com. I will include a link in the show notes. And, uh, and yeah, now the interview in this podcast might uh, end a little bit abruptly because due to sound issues, I had to cut out the questions and answers from the audience. But I think we can hear enough of the interview uh, between myself and Willie. I think he did a great, great job, at least of selling the book and hit some really, really fantastic stories. So without further ado, here is my interview as part of the live Q&A with Willie McGee. Please enjoy. So hello, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, it's uh, great to see so many people here, <laughs> more than I expected. <laughs> um, so yeah, so as Caroline mentioned, I'm Shorsha, I have a podcast called Shorsha Speaks With, and today I'm speaking with Willie McGee, who I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, know, or maybe some of you know him, some of you know of him. Uh, we're going to get to know him a little bit more now. Uh, he has written a book called Tales from the Fraud Squad. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of these stories that are in the book. You've led a very interesting life. Uh, so first of all, hello, Willie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Enough. Uh, well, delighted to uh, to be chatting with you here. Uh, so I suppose we'll just uh, start talking about the book then. So uh, very early on in the book, uh, you wrote that a certain Grace Kelly came to Mayo. <laughs> and... I believe, did she admire a certain 14-year-old red-headed boy from Mayo? What can you tell us about that? That's correct indeed, yeah. Actually, Grace Kelly's grandfather was born in the rear, just two miles outside Newport from where I come from in Mayo. And she was at home. She stayed in Newport House Hotel um, with Prince Rainier. And uh, she was going out to visit her ancestral home. And um, I was running alongside the car. And uh, she let down the window of the car. I was 14 years old at the time, and probably well fit, a lot thinner than I am now, but the, she let down the window of the car anyway. She admired my red curly hair and my freckles. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a funny, funny thing happened. Um, There's a, a quarterly issue of a Garda retired members magazine, and I wrote in the magazine about 
having that acquaintance with, with uh, Francis Grace. And it's, it awoke the memory of uh, the special branch driver of the car which was driving behind her. And actually that car, she let down the window of the car which was a breach of security. <laughs> she fighting the life out of the, the escort because she shouldn't have done that because it was dangerous letting down the window somebody could go in and attack her. But Strassman was admiring my, my, my hair. <laughs> but he, he, he followed up with a letter to the editor as well telling the editor that I was telling the truth. But that was early on in my career. I was four, 14 years of age, John Lescott Newport. That's where I come from in Mayo. And, and yeah, I believe you met another famous person later on. Uh, did you meet a boxer as well later uh, on? <laughs> from, from a teenage, teenager, I always listened to, I was, I was um, crazy about boxing, and I used to listen to the, to the BBC Live programme every Monday night. There was a British title fight or a world fight title fight and I knew that the world champions of every weight from flyweight to heavyweight and uh, needless to say when I was in in the guards I was in the crime task force and I was driving down Armin Key one 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 day and uh, I saw a black a big black guy about six foot six walking along the quay and I hopped out of the car in full uniform and I approached him and he put up his hands and he says I'm, I'm okay I'm okay I'm innocent and uh, I says okay I said all I want is your autograph <laughs> but it's funny that this guy Albert Lewis learned his boxing in prison in New York he's been taught his youth in prison he was a, he was a terrible man and uh, he says every time a policeman approached me before he said he, he, he put on the handcuffs and knocked me off he said this is <laughs> so I don't know where the notebook is now but it's signed Albert Lewis signed and he actually invited me to, the, to attend the fight in Crow Park that night as well but I told him it was okay that I had got tickets already, so um, I, I used my police, my gather car to get in. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there and I beside the ring when they were fighting. Do you remember who he was fighting? Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. And, uh, I, I, I was in Crow Park as well to see Muhammad Ali fighting our boxing and training. And uh, he was an amazing man, a great entertainer, naturally enough, as you all know. But um, it was an experience for me to, to, well, to see Muhammad Ali. Mm. And to meet Albert Lewis as well in the, in, the, in the process. Well, it would have been interesting if you had met Muhammad Ali on the footpath. It'd be more interesting to meet than Albert. He was a dour, Albert Lewis, a big, big guy, and he, a dour kind of character. wasn't talking, talking to him, so. But I met him and, and he signed my, my notebook, mm -hmm. which is most unusual for him. I'm sure he told the story back in America. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that uh, kind of struck me as well, when you, I believe when you left, was it 1966, I believe there was a Tom Jones song, was it uh, yeah. Green Grass of Home? I, I, 19 years of age, I left home to, to join the guards and, and fired into Dublin at 19 years of age and, and doing my tour here on Colin Bridge, you know, at 19, it was a great, a great move from the quiet lands of Mayo. But anyway, when I left in November 1966, Tom Jones was, was, was um, the Green Grass of Home was, was um, the, Top of the pops at the time, but uh, the, um, just uh, an aside to that, um, there was a guy, and around the same time he was he was um, infatuated with Tom Jones, and he, he was singing the Green Grass Home Night, Noon, and Morning, which resulted that in in his wife making him go to the doctor <laughs> to see what was wrong. So he told the doctor anyway, and the doctor said that that must be Tom Jones-itis you have. <laughs> and, and he said he said to the doctor, is that common? And the doctor said, no, it's not unusual. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the joke for the night. <laughs> I twisted that around myself to say that it was me that attended the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, it's, 
it's a funny one. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thirdly, as you mentioned in the book that you grew up in Mayo, and then you uh, went to, to Dublin. Before we talk about your time in the Fraud Squad, because I'm sure there are people here, uh, you mentioned actually before the interview that there are people who kind of uh, skipped the parts where you're uh, the footballer and just read the parts where you're in the Fraud Squad. Other people who skipped the parts where you're in the Fraud Squad and just uh, read the parts where you're a Mayo footballer. So we'll talk a little bit about both uh, sections. So you played for, for Mayo then. Uh, do you remember when you first started playing for Mayo? Uh, the, was it under 21? I so? know, it was minor actually, under minors, 18, yeah. and we were beaten in, in, a, in a tonic minor final by, by Ross Common, and uh, I was very depressed because I thought I'd be getting on television if I got to the Larry's to be televised, even though they're black and white yeah. at that time. But still not, it'd be nice to be on television, but it didn't, it didn't work out. But further on to under 21, I progressed to play under 21, and the fortune, the fortune, we drew with Kerry in, in the under 21 final in Co Park, and uh, the replay was fixed for Ballinasloe in October 1967. And that day in, in Ballinasloe, it was a very bad, mucky day, but anyway, I scored four goals that day, and I been tagged with four goals McGee since and I can't shake it off. <laughs> <laughs> that's 55, 55 years ago and I'm still known today. Some some of you here today know that yeah. know that very well. Well I'm sure it's a nice thing to be called, you know, after scoring four goals in the final. Do you, do, what do you remember of that day actually? Do you remember much of, of that day specifically? I, I, I don't remember a lot, but I, I know I know for one thing that my when the match was over my father came in and he gave me the hug. And he was crying, and my father wasn't the hoggy type at all. He, but I, I wonder why he was crying. And <laughs> it was the reason of, of, of what I did on the day. Like, and I suppose, like, if your son scored four goals in the other final, he'd be crying as well. So it hit me fairly hard, but I didn't realise it at the time because he, was, he wasn't the hoggy type. He was a very <laughs> certain kind of a man. That was the progress then. I graduated then to play on the senior team and then for Connacht as well. So. Do you know if anybody else has scored four goals in the final? I mean, I went to sport myself a little, but I can't think of anybody. Well, I, actually, I, I, I don't know his name, but he didn't, he didn't receive the same notoriety as me, but a Kerry fellow scored four goals in a final years later, four goals in a point. I don't even know his name. So yes, so then you talk about uh, your time playing for, for Mayo, um, and actually I like the title of one of your chapters, which uh, is uh, take the point, the goals will come. <laughs> Was well, that some advice that you were given? It isn't easy yeah, about goals. The goals count, and oftentimes, you know, goals are missed in, in matches and, and, and uh, lose by a point. That's, that's why I threw in that sentence. Take the goals, the points will come. Yeah. Well, it's the best of luck to Mayo. I think, uh, well, yeah. I don't know, maybe if you're from Dublin, you might want Dublin to, <laughs> to win, but I think, as you mentioned, uh, most of the country would want Mayo yeah. to win. That's true, yeah. That's uh, the message we're getting through all the time for years yeah. and years. Yeah. Ago, so. yeah, yeah. Keep it up anyway, keep sharing us. Yeah, well, hopefully the other teams can uh, take note. Yeah. Um, but you also mentioned in the book um, that uh, there was some was there some controversy as well that you had a suspension uh, going back. I don't know if you want to talk about that or if that's yeah, it was it was an unusual suspension. It wasn't for bad player, dirty player, and that was for playing illegally in New York. I went over to New York and played with Conor Gales against the. Without permission from the county board, which I wasn't aware of, that I had to get permission from the county board. But it's a most unusual situation. They suspended me for that purpose, and uh, even though I, I apologised um, personally to the chairman of the county board, he didn't want it um, verbally. He wanted it in writing, so he sent a, a representative to, to track me down to get it in writing. Mm -hmm. And I actually was on the beat in, in Grafton Street 
one particular day when I was tapped on the shoulder by a, a man called Father Paddy Mahan. He was chairman of the Galway County Board, who was sent by the chairman of the Mayo County Board, Father Leo Morahan, to get me to, to uh, apologise in writing. So I was, I was smoking 30 or more major cigarettes that time in the middle of football career. And uh, the only thing I could do was take out the, the major box out of my pocket, break it up, and take the, open the outside of it and tell them that's the only paper I have. You know, I, you know, I had a notebook in my pocket. I didn't want to go write it on the notebook. I said, I'll write it on the major box. So I wrote a few lines in the major box and apologised for playing in, in New York against the wishes of the, of the county board and gave it to Father Paddy Mahoney. He took it and went off with it and... and Following week, I was selected back on the on the team. So, <laughs> there's no record. There's no record. I've checked, and there's no record of the major box being produced at any county board meeting. <laughs> in the minutes of any meeting, I've had a few people search for it, and never, never, never is. Put it in his pipe and smoke. <laughs> but I told that story to many people over the years, and they said, "Make sure when you write the book." Um, Make the chapter hitting major story. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, well, good that you were able to come back. And um, and one thing that I'm curious about because I believe you you came up to Dublin to be a guard first, and I believe you mentioned the book that you were based in Pier Street. That's right. Um, and you still played for Mayo then. So did you go back down to train with Mayo? Did you do the, a train journey, or how did you manage? Uh, it was a four-hour journey from from Dublin to Mayo in in the Volkswagen Beetle. Mm. No power steering, <laughs> bad, bad roads. In those roads as well back yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> and I, with the results of travelling down to play club matches and county matches, I, I, I transferred over to the Garda team in Dublin, which was, which was more suitable to me. So I played with the Garda team for a number of years then. So then speaking of the, of the guards, um, you weren't always, I mean, I believe was it your father who wanted you to join the army, I Sorry. believe, was it? Uh, what, what happened? Well, uh, this is another funny one. <laughs> <laughs> my father was anxious that I joined the cadets because the cadets was a prestigious job at the time when I was 19 years of age and I was fairly fit playing, playing football and so forth. And um, I applied for the army for the cadets and uh, went to the medical. And the medical, I had dentures in, in, in my mouth, uh, some upper and some lower. And when that was found out at the medical, I was I was uh, refused and uh, didn't make it through. But um, afterwards, um, a, a man in my era who, who wore glasses joined the cadets. He was allowed into the cadets. I don't know why, whether it was full or not, I don't know. But anyway, my, my argument is that if I'm out in the, in the ditch on a wet night in the war, would be better off with, with dentures in his mouth than if I was glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I was glasses in a rainy night. <laughs> that, that was my argument anyway, and I explained that in the book. <laughs> No, that's what, one thing that struck me. Do, do you wish that you had joined the army? Do you, are, you ha or are you happy that they didn't accept you, that you were able to I know, I, I, join I, the guards? I, I had a great life in, in, in the guards, and, and when, when if you get a book and read it, you'll, you'll know why you know, all these stories, <laughs> that, that, uh, things, people I encountered in my life. And it was a most enjoyable life. No, that's good. No, definitely, you did have a very interesting time, according to your book, and which we'll talk about. Um, now, but you didn't join the fraud squad, I believe, immediately. So, what was uh, what was it like? Uh, what were your memories of uh, when you first joined the Gardaí and um, and the training? Uh, is there anything in particular? Because I believe in the book, was there? I might be misremembering, but did you have an altercation with someone, or no? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I blame myself for blaming him. 
<laughs> I had an altercation with the classmate, all right, and, and uh, I ended up hitting him a slap, just a slap to the fist, or the hand not, not the fist. And we were talked to, to by, by the, the sergeant, the training sergeant, and he caused us to, to shake hands and, and, and carry on, which he did. And uh, something that shouldn't happen in training for a guard to be a disciplined person out in the street to, to hold your temper. So unfortunately, I, I, I lost mine. But um, that particular incident was the cause of another chapter which happens in the book at a later time. It's actually an interesting one. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. <laughs> did he have it coming? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't directly involved. I was indirectly involved, but it was a very, very funny incident as well. <laughs> well, um, uh, before we talk about when you moved to the fraud squad, um, what, what do you say? Do you have any like quick definition of what fraud is? Because I'm sure all of us in the room probably think maybe differently of what fraud might be. But since, as you were the head of the fraud squad. What is, what is fraud for you? What would you say it is? I, I, as I told you earlier, I had, a, I had a definition on the top of my head which I used to recite to, to <laughs> people that I did talks to when I was in my fraud squad days in, in the yards. But I, I kind of forget it now. But uh, fraud, fraud is a kind of a general word, an umbrella term that can be used for, for a lot of different things. And, but there's no, there's no such thing, uh, no offensive fraud. There's no actually crime of fraud. The nearest thing to that would be conspiracy to defraud. Legislation, and unfortunately, during my time in, in, in the guards in the fraud squad, especially the legislation was very poor. That, that we we couldn't uh, arrest. That. You had to find somebody committing fraud before you you could uh, arrest them. And we, we knew the, the the perpetrators and the culprits. Day one, the minute they the fraud was perpetrated, the we knew who they were. And oftentimes they would ring in the fraud squad, and they'd say, "Criminals, fraudsters, one." Fraud squad nil, taking the mickey out of us. And yeah. that time there was no phone tracing around, but we knew who they were, and, and, and but that was the game that they played and the game that we played as well, trying to catch them, but we couldn't arrest them. If we, we, we knew that if you took them in for, for uh, questioning, that they wouldn't say a word, to, to take a spot on the wall, and they wouldn't admit anything, because we had no power to, to uh, the powers that they have now in relation to um, the prosecutor's job. But, um, mm. If we had DNA at that time, we'd, we'd have been arresting a lot more of them. Mm. And some of them come up in, in the book there, and some of the stories as well. I, I haven't, haven't investigated them, but we caught them on the job. So. I think it must be very frustrating that you, you know they're guilty, <laughs> but you can't do anything about it. And you know that they have probably defrauded you know, people out of a lot of money. That's true indeed. Anybody here knows anything about uh, law? The, when I retired in 2002, the Criminal Justice Theft and Fraud Offences Act came in to give the guards stronger, more stronger powers to, to um, investigate fraud. Something we were looking for years, and I, we were lobbying for years and years and years, the Law Reform Commission, but it came out the year that I, I left the guards, actually, in oh. 2002. <laughs> Typical. Yeah. So, after uh, so many years of frustration, not, not being able to, to mm. do what we wanted to do. But uh, when you read the book, you see that anyway, you see that coming out strongly, mm. that, of the problems we had. But yeah, I think you can definitely tell there are some other stories that will probably help build up better. Well, do you have a favourite story? Because I do several stories, all of them very interesting, very interesting anecdotes. Do you have a personal favourite story um, that's in the book? Or There's one that, of a, a priest that I came across in three different walks of life. And it's a very interesting <laughs> story. And it was a real priest, and he actually was the parish priest of Ballinaspittal. And uh, anybody here from, and you heard their Ballinaspittal? No. no? 
if 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 you were you you, you don't understand and know the kind of person I dealt with. And it was very interesting that I came across him in three different walks of life. As a superintendent in McCroom, I came across him first. When I came back to the Frost Squad as a second superintendent, I came across him. And when I left the guards and I spent 10 years with accident insurance as, as a fraud investigation manager there, I came across him in my capacity in that as well. The very same man. And he was a priest. And, and I can just tell you that he was the Paris priest in Ballinus Spittle when the movement actually was there. So I, I rest my case on that one. So you can, <laughs> so you can work that one out yourselves. After reading that chapter, and that chapter is whiter than white collar crime. White collar crime is raw crime, but I, I headed it whiter than white collar crime. Because of but I remember in, in the time, in, in the time of, of the movement statue being highlighted and so forth. I was out for dinner with, with an American one night, and it was the night that, and in the Evening Press, on the front page of the Evening Press, there was a caption of a statue of Our Lady and a, um, a placard around, around her head. And back in five minutes was, 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 was a caption on it. And I, I, I explained a violent spirit to this man. And when he saw the, the, cart the cartoon on the back of five minutes, he nearly died laughing. <laughs> no. you, I saw you, you asked me about the favourite story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I broke yeah. away and uh, like my favourite story in the book was, is the white and white collar crime, and that's something, some a chapter that she definitely enjoy. Yeah. But the, the, I suppose the one, the biggest one of the lot was, was in 1979, there was a threat to spread foot and mouth disease in the country unless a ransom of five million pounds was paid to the Department of Agriculture to, to prevent the spread of foot and mouth disease. And um, actually Charlie Bird has, through his clone voice at the moment, interviewed me and he's doing a documentary on that particular chapter in the book as well. So, um, he, he has done a podcast for Senior Times already with it, but he's doing, a, he's doing a documentary on it. He was so interested in that particular chapter as well. So It's an interesting one because I was very young in, in the Frost Squad at the time. And it went on for nearly nine months, and there was nobody caught at the end of it. So mm. You haven't read the book. That is, I mean, the whole book is good, but mm. that chapter, it plays like a film. <laughs> I was so interested. I could not believe that this happened. And did the public know about it at the time? Or? No, they didn't know. No, nobody knew anything about it, because we were afraid of our life that it would get out anywhere down the line, mm. either through the guards or mm. anything. So, so we kept it a very tight, tight lid on it. And, uh, kept us among a small group of people in the Frost Squad and uh, it never got out. So. We went through the process of, of the demand. Uh, when, you, when you get to the end, that's <laughs> happening a lot of Sorry. I'm not, I'm not saying get out and buy that book, but uh, whatever you wish yourself. <laughs> I mean, the, that chapter alone is worth the book, I'd say, but... They are not. Uh, no, that, I'm not paid to say that, by the way. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to talk about this as well. There's another chapter about, was it a bank fraud or something, in, is it Taiman in County Wexford? Yeah, which interested me because I'm from Wexford. Yeah, so it's a very interesting <laughs> one actually. The, the, there were a number of bank drafts stolen from the Delarue Smurfing plant in, in, in Huddleston, Oregon or Bray, and um, the Frosters got their hands on, on, on them and five, five delegates were dispatched to Dublin to, to go to five different banks at the, uh, within a half an hour period and present the drafts for payment in the, in the, in the banks. And each, each bank rang the Bank of Ireland and Tagmon in Wexford to verify the ownership of the, of the drafts. But what, what happened initially was that the Bank of Ireland and Tagmon got a call from what they, what they were told was the, uh, an official from Telecom saying that there was 
they're having problems with the, with the phone lines in the bank and they might be disrupted now and again. But um, the Bank of Ireland accepted that. So a few days later, the Telecom Aaron official rang again the bank to tell them that the phone lines will be down for maybe half an hour, so don't worry about it, it's, it's everything is in order. But that half hour was the, t the half hour that these soldiers were, were dispatched and would be in each bank in Dublin. So the banks, as I say, in turn rang the Bank of Ireland in Tagman, but that phone line from the Bank of Ireland in Tagman was diverted to a shed, to an actual shed out in the middle of the field where, where the organiser was. So each person, uh, Willie McGee, or our, 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 um, Dunbar, any, uh, whatever name was on the, the draft, the person in the shed would be able to describe that person to a T. And the, the, the drafts were paid. So that, that happened, except one. One soldier from the Bank of Ireland in Thomas Street went back to his organiser in Wexford and said, sorry, the bank in Thomas Street wouldn't give me the 5,000, they only gave me 3,000. And um, the organiser in Wexford, the head man, he was actually a well-known Sierra Airman, but he, 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 he rang the Bank of Ireland in Tagman, or in um, Thomas Street, and said he was from the fraud squad. And he was just checking on how much was got on that draft that was cashed last week with you. Oh yeah, sorry, the, the Bank of Ireland in Tagman didn't know until all the drafts came back to the Bank of Ireland in Tagman, and didn't they realise they were forgeries, they weren't, they weren't issued by the Bank of Ireland in Tagman at all. Because the Taiwan was written on, but the our friend in in Thomas Street went back to his boss and said that he, he only got three thousand, and the bank the bank manager wouldn't give him the lot. But then uh, the organizer rang the bank to confirm that he 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 him. So I got a phone call in in the fraud squad from a fellow in a muffled kind of voice, telling me that the perpetrator who cashed the check in. In Thomas Street, was living in a in a in a, a good well-up muse in 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 um, Fitzwilliam, and we we went down there. We got a search warrant and went down there, and we arrested him. And uh, was a man. He had misery everything. He told us who the organizer was in Wexford as well. But again, we could do nothing with that because we, our hands were tied with lack of legislation, and we couldn't do anything. So, but he, he went, we, went, we put him to the course and we charged him and convicted him and he had him and pleaded guilty and everything, he was fined and, and, and that's him, but he's, he's a, a man who has done very well for, in his life in, in the meantime, in, in the music industry, I, I can't mention his name and I won't mention his name, but a lot of people have been pleading with me for his name, but I can't, I can't mention that. Now you kind of spoke about uh, the fraudsters, I said, you know, fraudsters won, I think was it the fraud squad yeah, uh, yeah. zero. Uh, what, was, it, was there anything that ever felt personal against you in particular, or? No, there wasn't really, no. But, uh, were that, that's the kind of breed they were, that mm. we were dealing with all our lives, you know, the, the, the con men and con women. Sorry, con men all the time. Right? <laughs> we came across the women as well, because there was a woman who presented herself in Dublin Airport to cash a check, and she was dressed up as a nun. She hired the nun's outfit from a theatrical place in Dame Street for the purpose of a nun's checkbook and check card was stolen. And then she got it and I'll catch these now and I'll dress up to be a, a nun. And the teller in Dublin Airport refused to catch the check for her, right? And this is a totally true. <laughs> she, she lifted him out of it when he wouldn't catch the check. And the reason he told us he didn't catch the check was he reckoned she was too good looking to be a nun. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I am. That's true. 
And uh, we, we actually we actually caught her in the end, but um, she she heard she flew down from Dublin to Knock Airport, and uh, she hired a car with the nuns, paid for it. And the nuns' driving license was, was taken as well at the time, but there was no photographs of the driving license, it was just a sister mm. of whatever her name is. Mm. And uh, she went she went on tour in, in Mayo with cashing <laughs> checks because she had the nuns' outfit and she had the... And that time, it, with the, you, a lot of you remember, a, a checkbook and check card had to, you'd have to have your signature to mm. correspond with the check. Yeah. Mm. Checkbook or the check and and the check card, mm. and uh, they used to clean the the check card that time. They put put a, the card in in a in a ashtray full of of um, brake fluid, and in the morning the signature began to clean. So that, that all they have all they have to do then is sign their name in their own writing, mm. and she was able to sign her own name in her own writing on the check mm. and on the check card, and it matched, and so there was no problem with it. But she 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 came. She came um, loose in Castle Bear. She, she went into a jeweller shop and uh, she bought a, a, a watch for the parish priest. And she, <laughs> she left it anyway, thanks very much. And she went off, off uh, to another jeweller shop. And the jeweller in the first shop saw her coming out of the second jeweller shop. And he, he, he thought there was something suspicious about her. And he, he uh, went into the second jeweller shop and he said, did, did, did the woman or did the nun buy anything in here? She said, she bought a watch for her parish priest. And she did the same thing in my shop down the road five minutes ago. But then they said, we put the ring Castle Bar Gala station, which they did. And I had circulated about a nun cashing checks. And the detective in, in Castle Bar, remember, that's, that's something I, that he, he remember re reading. And uh, he circulated the, 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 that fact. But they found out the car she was driving, and it was a car she had hired and not with, with, the, with the checkbook <laughs> as well. And, uh, they set up a checkpoint outside Clamaris anyway, and she was arrested. And uh, she, she wasn't. She didn't say her prayers to the guards anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we we knew who she was the minute the minute that the teller told told us that she was too good to be a nun. She we knew who she was because we, we knew of the, the women that were doing checks at the time. You know, we, we knew everybody. But uh, that's another mm. story. Unusual. <laughs> so that's why I had to write the books to to get these stories done. I was telling these stories to people over the years mm -hmm. and uh, the answer from everybody out the question from everybody is, will you write a book please? Yeah. 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 We're glad you did. So, <laughs> that didn't know, so it's gone on well. Yeah, and, th and then you, you, you mentioned when you left the Guardian in 2002, you did you join, I think, an insurance company? That's correct, I insured AXA, AXA Insurance, AXA, yes, the first sir. insurance company that set up a um, special investigation unit to, to fight um, fraudulent claims, and it was very prevalent in the, in the mm. insurance industry, as you can imagine, because there's, a, there's one chapter in the book that amazes a lot of uh, claims from, from insurance companies that we dealt with when we were in the fraud squad as well, so it was a continuation of that. So mm. it was something I enjoyed, I spent 10 years in that, and again, there are some interesting stories there from, from um, all fraud related actually. So. Mm. You also mentioned in the book uh, when you suffered a stroke and you talk about your recovery um, since then. I just wanted to ask you, do you remember much about that day and then how your recovery is going? And well, next, next month it'll be seven years ago I got a serious stroke and, and I was lucky enough, it was a Sunday morning at half past nine and I was brought to the Matter Hospital straight from the Eastlip where I live. And um, they did an MRI and discovered the in my brain and took me to Beaumont and within a few hours I, the flat was dissolved so that was the 
That's why I'm sitting here today talking mm. to you. Mm. I, I was not in time. If, if it happened down the country or somewhere else in the middle of a golf course, something mm. else, I'd have been in trouble. But I was not in time. So I still, I still suffer from, from my left side coordination. I still can't use an Eiffel Park. And it's nearly seven years ago. The, the coordination of Eiffel Park. And, and mm. uh, I can't swim. Not that I'm a strong swimmer at all. But um, I can't coordinate my left arm with my left leg. And I'm very frustrated in the swimming pool. I, mm. I was in the swimming pool this morning in Minut, and uh, all I can do is jog in the pool, and I can't swim. Mm. But anyway, I'm, I'm here. And, and yeah. Yeah. Like I, I was told mm. to say like that my brain attack no longer affects my logical thinking, but I still have a tendency to forget immediate things, you know. To, mm. um, my ninth grandchild was christened, and uh, we had a great day in Minut, and I... I, I scolded a good few pints of Guinness and I had a few black bush at the end of it. And yeah, I thought when I had the pain in my head on Sunday morning, I thought it was the effect of the black bush. And it wasn't, it was the lady stroke coming on. But, uh, and actually, believe it or not, I, I did get back driving. I passed a, a, what they call an assessment. And I was, I, on the manual car I, that I had, I was riding the clutch of my left leg. and. Not, not changing gears properly, so I bought an automatic and, and uh, I passed the test on the automatic. But um, I was driving the back road back from, from Westminster to Leaslip and I came across at T Junction. And I turning right, a man, a van coming this way hit me and I touched him. And uh, I went scuffed marks, but unfortunately, um, my family, when they heard that I had a, a tip, they said, No more driving. And you know, I could kill myself or I could kill somebody else. So. I was banned from by the family, so that's how I, I'm on suspension at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's so thank you. It's a different kind of suspension, like the I believe the final thing, that at least for me, is uh, sort of one reason to get this book is because, as we spoke with some of them, it's full of fascinating stories from your time in Mayo at the football team and the fraud squad. But I believe are the royalties of the book going to the Irish Heart. Yeah, I, I when, when I when I um, came out came home from the stroke, I, I the Irish Heart Foundation organised stroke conferences in in Copper, uh, Convention Centre for stroke victims, mm. you know, for uh, and um, there's a lot of breakout classes and, and situations there, and there's a lot of work to help the stroke victims because the stroke stroke affects people much more so than than with your space anybody having a bypass, mm. you're yeah. back and doing things. But the stroke affects them, has long-term mm. effects on them. But I said, if I'm writing the book, and I met, I met the head of advocacy at the Irish Heart Foundation a few months after I came out of hospital, and I told him if I'm right, I told him I was writing the book. I, I had a lot of it written at the time, and yeah. uh, that I'd give every penny to, to the Irish Heart Foundation if it was a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that That's all the royalties are going to them. So actually, today the first royalty payment is, is done today. So I inquired that they pay the royalties annually. So this time next year. So that was my interview with Willie McGee uh, at the Lucan Library as part of the Red Line Festival. Uh, huge thank you to Lucan Library uh, for organising this and for inviting the two of us. Uh, I had a really great time. Um, and uh, so the next part of the interview was uh, audience questions, but unfortunately I had to edit them out because uh, of the sound quality, very sound quality so um i unfortunately had to leave them out but i think we heard quite a lot from willie and i hope people enjoyed it and i uh, also hope people get a chance to uh read his book 
It's a really, really interesting book. And I would highly recommend it. He told some of the stories uh, in that book as well. So again, it's Tales from the Fraud Squad by Willie McGee. I will include a link in the show notes. And uh, include a link as well to the Redline Festival so you can see what other events they had going on and other authors that uh, were interviewed. Um, and uh, uh, now if you have read the book, uh, you probably read at the end that um, Willie McGee mentioned after his stroke that uh, one of the things that he really wanted to do was to go and visit the house of Padre Pio. And I'm delighted to say that after speaking to Willie, he said that he did manage to visit the house. So uh, hopefully he can write about that in a sequel. But he did manage to do what he always wanted to do and go to Padre Pio's house. So uh, that is one thing that's another thing that he has managed to achieve. And as I said, uh, I agreed with Willie that I would um, quote from one of his favorite songs, The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. Um, and so the quote is, um, I spent my life reading other people's faces, knowing what their cards were by the way they held their eyes. So I think, uh, definitely we can agree that, uh, that quote would definitely suit Willie with, uh, how he managed to, uh, work in the fraud squad. Uh, so, um, so once again, huge thank you to Willie for the interview and for everything he's done, um, both as a footballer and as head of the fraud squad and helping people. Um, and huge thank you to Luke and Library again and to everyone for listening. So uh, hopefully I can do some more of these and hopefully I can do more interviews. If you yourself would like to appear on this podcast, especially if you are an author or an actor or uh in the entertainment industry or anything at all uh, or in the arts or culture sector please let me know and i'll be happy to speak with you so uh until next time which hopefully will be very short uh take care everyone goodbye